We don't want to have a Pete situation again. Yeah. No offense, Pete. <laughs> no, none taken, mate. None taken. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really any offense I can take there, is that? I can't stop that. <laughs> 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 Do you ever speak to me like that again? <laughs> You know how they do like cold opens on podcasts where they just play a random soundbite? <laughs> that may be it, Pete. And welcome to the Cacophony Sessions podcast. This is the first in what we hope will be a series of discussions about music. We're here to dissect your audio delights through the insights of various people who all share a common attribute, and that is passion for music. I'm your host for tonight's session, Dan, aka Golden E Pump. Don't ask. This will serve as a kind of icebreaker episode. You'll find that we're all very passionate, and I'm sure there'll be some outlandish opinions. On the menu this evening is a veritable feast of opinionated pie, as we ask the big question. What is the greatest year in music? Before that, let's get acquainted, shall we? I've decided to start a podcast because I love music. I love listening to music. I love making music. I love talking about music. Some artists in particular... But I won't specify just yet in case some of you are playing some kind of drinking game. I love funk and soul music, uh, but I do listen to most things. Uh, rock, pop, jazz, hip-hop, dance. Yeah, a bit of everything, really. I'm a misanthrope in rehabilitation at the moment. I used to hate everything. Um, and then about two years ago, I decided it's silly to exempt myself from discovering new music and new sounds. So now I'm just annoyingly enthusiastic about everything. Uh, I'm a singer. Uh, nearly finished an album under my musical alias, Danny W and the Dope, uh, which consists of some of my co-collaborators here present. Uh, never done a podcast before, uh, but now I find myself at the base camp of Mount Discourse, boring you all to death. So, Martin, uh, if you could save me here, please. Well, my name's Martin, and I smell like teen spirit. Um, <laughs> reference that we'll be talking about later. Yeah. <laughs> to wash you dirty bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm um, a guitar player and love music. I'm not going to bore you with all that guitar playing stuff. That's not what this is about. Um, but the music I listen to is the best music that's ever been made, and it's better than any of the music that you listen to every time. Um, I like almost any genre except for um, what's that stuff they call on the adverts you get these days? You know, the. Uh, the bank adverts where you've got like an old Depeche Mode song and you've got some lady singing it with a whispery voice and some plinky piano and everybody's crying. Um, so I think it's called shit. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> that, that sort of thing, yeah, that, that's fancy music. But I'll listen to almost anything as long as it's good and well made. Um, but yeah, that's me. Um, so I'll pass myself over, I'll pass over to Tom. Uh, thanks, Martin. So I'm Tom. Um, so music-wise, my background's actually in classical music. I've played piano since I was about four. I'm very into obscure modern stuff, serialism, minimalism, that sort of thing. Um, I've been spending lockdown recording an album of minimalist piano, which I'm sure everyone's desperate to hear. Um, 
as a teenager, I played clarinet and played in jazz and swing. And then puberty hit, and like everyone else, I wanted to be a rock star after failing at being a music journalist when I was at university. Um, I play a bit of ba- I play bass and a bit of guitar. I played in bands with both Dan and Martin. Um, I played in a grunge band that that was the the closest to success I ever got, and that was one slot on BBC introducing and a couple of live radio sessions. But hey, I'll take it because my day job doesn't pay too badly. Um, <laughs> in terms of my taste in music. Um, you tend to find if it's heavy and predominantly instrumental, it's probably where I am. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I like lots of things. As I say, background, classical jazz, um, hip hop and electronic are a little bit of blind spots for me. There's a couple of couple of albums I really love, but um, I, I'm using this partly as an opportunity to dig deeper into those genres from some guys who know a lot about them, and, and hopefully I'll be able to inflict on them some experimental rock music. Um, I already have I already have with one album, and uh, you'll hear about that later. Right, okay, we'll pass on to Pete. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Um, so my name's Pete. Um, same, got obviously a huge interest in music, um, hence doing the, um, or participating in the podcast. So I've recorded like, um, various sort of projects for, for years, but it's kind of projects that eternally sort of don't get finished. Um, and so I'm actually trying to, um, to really finish my latest uh, project. So I record under the name Stereofied and I'm trying to do sort of a, a pop R&B hip hop kind of, uh, album. Um, so hopefully I'll be completing that soon. That'll be out sort of within the six, next six six months to a year. And um, apart from that, uh, sort of music-wise, uh, I listen to a lot of hip hop, a lot of old school hip hop, um, but sort of dip into all kind of uh, kinds of styles of music. But predominantly hip hop and, uh, and R and B, I'd say mainly. And I'll, I'll pass you over to Dave. Hi there, um, my name's David. Um, I go under the DJ name DJ Functivus. I DJ over the last few years in the Southwest area, but previous to that, I lived in South London, in Brixton, and Morden, and the South London area. Um, I was very heavily into the golden era of hip hop and DJ that genre, um, and then got into the the samples of which that compromise, so Funk and Soul, uh, been involved with Funk and Soul projects in the Southwest. Uh, did a degree in music technology and sound technology. Um, and I'm currently a part time DJ and involved in hospitality, but a long serving lover of music. So. Excellent. So that's everybody on the podcast. Um, I think we've got a topic this evening that we should be able to get some uh, some mileage out of. What is the greatest year in music history? Um, this is going to be a series of opinions, really, because you can't really talk about music from an objective level. I'm sure Tom could very easily, um, <laughs> but maybe not. The, maybe not. I, I certainly can't make that distinction between talking about music as as an art form objectively, just with bangers I really love. Um, so with that, I picked 1987. That was the year I was born. That's not the reason I've nominated it. Um, it but it was a year uh, that, well, I look back on. I'm, I made a playlist and it is just chock full of ba- uh, bangers. And uh, the, the pop music scene at the time was coming to the end of the, the, the 80s 
and the start of something new uh, in terms of new jack swing, etc. So pop music was was evolving. There were a lot of hip hop acts that debuted in that year, um, such as um, Public Enemy, uh, Ice T, Eric B, and Rakim. Um, uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince with their debut as well. Um, so music's changing in 1987. The the pop sound is very much a uh, a kind of hybrid of um, Stock a- Aiken Walkman um, and New Jack Swing acts with that sound as well. Uh, some of the biggest songs that year, you've got Tiffany uh, with uh, I Think We're Alone Now, Rick Astley, uh, Never Gonna Give You Up, which has been memed to death but it's still a great pop song in my, in my opinion. Um, and you've got, um, as I said, Stock Aitken and Waterman's, uh, Me- uh, Mel and Kim's Respectable came out that year, which I think is possibly their best single. In other fields, uh, dance music just starting to come through. Uh, you have things like Mars's Pump Up the Volume, uh, Steve Silk Hurley's uh, Jack Your Body, which was number one yes, the week boy. I was born. Number one, the week I was born, uh, announcing Chicago House as a thing. Uh, so that music's changing very much in 1987. You've got the end of um, hair metal and uh, bands like White Snake are still releasing great albums, but it's shaping differently because now you've got Guns N' Roses launching Appetite for Destruction in 87. Um, so you've got other rock acts that are coming through as well. You two have their break, mainstream breakthrough in uh, the Joshua Tree, which is which is widely regarded as one of, if not their best album they ever did. Uh, the Smiths released their last album, um, Strange Ways, Here We Come. Um, you've got the House Martins with their final album, The People Who Grin Themselves to Death. Um, bon Jovi are, coming, uh, 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 are here with their biggest album, Slippery When Wet, 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 uh, uh, are arriving. Heart have got um, a, a big out, a big single uh, alone. Uh, so rock music is alive and well. It's a big year for nostalgia uh, with Benny King, Stand By Me, that we released that, got, uh, got to number one. And so did Reap Petite by uh, Jackie Wilson. Um, you've also got uh, acts like Starship, which were comprised of members of Jefferson Starship and Jefferson Airplane, um, coming back with a number one hit. I think Grace Slick, the singer for uh, Starship, was the uh, the oldest per- uh, oldest female to ever have a number one uh, hit in the UK. With uh, nothing's going to stop us now. So big year for acts coming back. Um, you've got Michael Jackson's Bad uh, is very much in the fabric of culture at the time. George Michael's Faith, uh, Terence Trent Darby's, uh, now known as Sananda Maitreya, his uh, his debut, introducing the hard line. Um, you've got Alexander O'Neill's Hearsay. Um, and then from where he came from in terms of flight time, Jam and Lewis are working with, um, just off the back of control, uh, with Janet Jackson. Um, and then Prince is doing his thing with Sign of the Times, his best record, uh, his, possibly his best protege record, in my opinion, as well. Jill Jones's album, uh, comes out that year as well. Um, and you've even got great, great, um, one off singles, uh, from people like, um, Robbie Neville had a hit with C'est La Vie, which is one of the best one-hit wonders of all time. And I'm, I, I think I'm going to kind of bring it cohesively and say that I think the, the, the thing that sold it for me the most is the fact that 1987 has, in my opinion, the greatest Christmas number one. And that is You're Always On My Mind by the Pet Shop Boys. 
It's not a Christmas song. It is a Christmas song. <laughs> Agreed. Not a Christmas song. It's an Elvis song. It is an Elvis. Yeah, but it's still released as a Christmas number one from the Pet Shop Boys. Just like Killing in the Name is a Christmas song now, by that logic. Wait, yeah, or so, we built this city on sausage rolls or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> or Mad World, the cover of Tears for oh, Fears. Geez. You know, if you if you're going with what's the best Christmas number one, it's gotta be killing in the name of, even though it's well, not yeah. in the spirit of it. The Pet Shop Boys uh, you're always on my mind. I think I think that's a better song than Rage Against the Machine. The frog song's the one. <laughs> what, the crazy frog. Well no, Paul McCartney and his frogs. Oh yeah, no, that's not a good song. It's brilliant. It's art, mate. <laughs> that was a lot of information, Dan. I enjoyed that. Uh, Dan. Uh, Dan. <laughs> Dan, you what I particularly liked is you touched upon Steve Sarkeely's Jackie Body, which was... Oh, yeah. I, I'm going to go with 1989 in a minute, and that's going to talk about the English summer of love with dance music, but really touched upon uh, Detroit and Chicago house music was happening way before that. And yeah, that was the anthem back in the day. What an absolute tune that was. <laughs> when did Voodoo Ray come out? Uh, would have been Hassie End of Days, uh, 89 or 90. I'll have to double check that. But See, I just find it bizarre that you can go through 1987 without mentioning Sister by Sonic Youth. Or is it oh, Nirvana's yeah, exactly. first album, 1987? I think Bleach came out in 88. Yeah. Before yeah. Grohl starts drumming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, they went through like four drummers before Grohl, didn't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. Chad Channing. Um, yeah. There were some others as well. There were several other things that did happen in 97 that are music related, but not necessarily releases. I mean, you've got um, Chuck Berry gets a Hollywood star on the Walk of Fame. Uh, you've got Aretha Franklin is uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the first woman as well. And I think that's a significant moment, especially uh, when. That's massive, really, isn't that? When you when you talk about 2020 and things that are happening in the uh, world around us at the moment, um, mm. that's a that's a big leap forward in terms of progression. Uh, so I think also, that's she was, was never pandered to. She was also given tracks which were given to other predominant male artists and did a better job and competed on mm. an imbalanced society. So made a better job of a record in a biased society. So yeah, absolute boss she was. Mm. Mm. Let's hear from you. Okay. Lovely stuff. Um, so the year I've chosen is uh, 1989. I was going to touch upon the fact that in England, it's, when, it's the second summer of love that's talked about when um, a lot of sort of illegal raves and the band Orbital took their name because everybody was doing raves illegally on the M25, which was known as the Orbital Road. So we've got a lot of touching in on um that scenario and a lot of albums that came out that year had that kind of ilk um so stone roses debut album came out then um which is obviously based in hacienda um the, the soul to soul come out with club classics volume one um and many many other dance albums that were coming out that particular year and it was kind of breaking through the mainstream um I love Acid, or I think the track was um, breaking through and was on the top ten that year with Acid House. Um, also notable sort of break-off genres is the reason I chose this year is 
It's uh, the Pixies' Doolittle album comes out that year. The Cure's Disintegration. Oh, best bangers! That's a, that's their best album. Yeah, best Cure album. Uh, Bleach, as we touched upon before, Nirvana comes out that year. Technique, New Order, which kind of branches them off into a new genre. The Real Thing, Faith No More, Spike, Elvis Costello, um, Sonic Temple uh, by The Cult. And it sort of sparks a kind of branching of many genres, really, where not only dance music is sort of spreading in that direction, but it's starting to pull away from sort of gothic pop music and going into the grunge scene. And sort of hair metal is starting to branch off into slightly more complex genres as well. Dr. Feelgood, Motley Crue comes out that year. Uh, Mother's Milk, Red Hot Chili Peppers was that year as well. Um yeah, it's really sort of a falling on from Dan in 1987. It's really starting to branch off into what we know in the modern days to be the forming of a lot of sub-genres. So it's a year which I find fairly interesting. Um, on top of the fact it's following on with a lot of seminal hip-hop albums, Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys comes out that yes. year. Mm. Um like a prayer, Madonna comes out that year. Mar Rogers is heavily involved with trying to shift from the disco scene when you have the, oh, the back end of disco sucks. And they're trying to really sort of hone in on something else they can grab a hold of there where everyone is basically sampling good times and he's looking to try and shift more into working with more progressive artists. Um Nina Cherry in the UK has mm. got Raw Like Sushi that comes out that year. And Janet Jackson's following up with many albums that they're on top of. Obviously, me and Dan's favourite artist, Prince, does Batman's soundtrack that year. Mm. Um, Bat Dance comes out. So, yeah, it's a, fight, it's, a, yeah it's, a, it's an odd year. This is why I've kind of chosen on it. It's sort of hip-hop is progressing from sort of like a a, a kitsch sort of disco spin-off to being its own genre. Dance music is starting to come into its own. Grunge music is starting to properly be formed. And things are starting to move away from the punk scene and moving into sort of new wave. So that's the reason I've picked upon this year and why I find it particularly interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's, there's a lot of factors there, aren't there? Um, yeah, it's a real sort of branching point. There's a, it seems like there's a lot of sort of musical styles that were really getting ready to be propelled sort of into the 90s, if you see what I mean. That you know, they're sort of primed and ready at the at the end of the decade, and then it just sort of exploded, you know, into the. It was a launch pad for the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah. Free High and Rising as well came out that year, 1989. Break away from gangster rap and coming into sort of what would then lead into sort of neo-soul and alternative more sort of, Yeah, more sort of progressive <clears throat> thoughts on what is hip-hop rather than sort of talking about your jewels in your car or whatever and what clout you've got in the street to trying to completely devolve yourself away from that and it's the same with Paul's Boutique as they came a, a long long road the Beastie Boys from being a punk rock band to being something which was sort of uh, neo hippie to back around to 
their sort of style of things. So yeah, it's a real sort of branching point, which is why I like that particular year. It's setting off the old and starting off with the new and branching off in interesting directions. Yeah. But that's that, that's interesting that you, that you say that because uh, three three feet high and rising makes me think of that because it was I think it was that album that really, if I'm correct, like propelled um, the the recording industry had to lobby to get the laws changed. I believe about sampling, wasn't it? Because there were just uh, such a huge amount of samples on the that was Paul's the record. Record. That was Paul's um, there's both of them. Unfortunately, the copyright law comes in in that year and kind of fucks both of them because before that was kind of the Wild West. And the reason why De La Soul still taught to this day is because they haven't made the sort of publishing and royalty money they should have made off the album because it's been mm-hmm. ripped out from underneath them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before it was just the absolute Wild West. Uh, um, yeah, sampling has uh, really took a hold there. People have creams quite a lot of the crop and people are starting to get really litigious in 1989. I find it really odd, the whole sampling debate, because actually if you go back to the 60s, classical music in the 60s, like the minimalist movement is all like Steve Reich, whose entire careers are based around sampling, which I just find really, so I find it really strange that it took until the 1980s for that debate to happen. And I think it's also bad that art lost. Exactly. Although two albums in 1989 that I'm not sure if you mentioned. Uh, Did you mention Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine? Exactly. I was waiting for that. I did it. It was on my list, yes. I flipping missed that. It's one of the seven naught albums. And there's one that you haven't mentioned, Martin, either, which is the Jesus and Mary Chains Automatic as well. Yeah. yeah. I I don't rate the album much. I'm more of a Psycho Candy man. Psycho Candy is a great album. Yeah. Psycho Candy is a better album, but it's still a it's still Automatic's a decent album. A good album to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, good it, point. <laughs> I stand corrected, Tom. <laughs> I'm just I'm surprised that you hadn't brought it up, considering that every time we talk about Scottish bands, you I always know. tell me that they're the best one. Sing on Nine Inch Nails, man. You know that. <laughs> I'm just going to point out, Dan, that the Bon Jovi "Slippery When Wet" actually came out in August '86. <laughs> It was a hit in 87. It was, it was, it was like... It was the biggest it, selling album of 87, but it actually exactly. came out in 86. Uh, well, I'm not 100%, yeah, I'm not 100% sure that you can have that then, Dan. That's... No. <laughs> this is this is my whole argument for my year. Okay, I will strike Slippery When Wet from the list, but I still think that my argument stands. I, I don't think that that's as... As uh, vital well, to my argument, it, it, something band, like Sign of the Times. As, it's the same or, as my argument with dance music. If it didn't really hit the shores of England to the second summer of Love '89, but yeah, as he's pointed uh, out, there's plenty so much, of much, that. much like much like I was born in '87. I was conceived in '86, but I wouldn't say that I was from 1986. So the next year we've got is 1991. Now, we, interestingly, we have two people that are vouching for 1991. At first, I wasn't going to allow it, but I thought, no, this is an opinionated show. People should be allowed to stand and fight for their own opinions. And if two people have the same opinion, then that just helps the conversation, I think. Um, So I'm going to go to Pete first for his thoughts on 1991. Pete. Okay, so I chose 1991. Um, 
I think what, what I'd like to focus on like the most is just uh, like some of the albums that came out that I think are just sort of so huge in that year. Um, so uh, Nirvana's Nevermind is uh, is from '91. Uh, Pearl Jam's Ten is uh, 1991. Michael Jackson's Dangerous. Um, and then there's some um, things like Boys to Men. Uh, came out in 1991 with um, Coolie High Harmony, which had um, End of the Road on it, which I believe was at, at the at number one in the USA for about 18 weeks, I think, mm. um, that was sort of record-breaking at the time. From um, and and that, um, uh, and obviously, that, and they have a lot of production by Dallas Austin as well, who is, um, you know, has gone on, I think, to be one of the, the, the great sort of... Um, songwriters who's worked then with Pink and various things so it sort of was a bit of a launching pad for his career as well I think um, and then uh, REM released Out of Time Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sex Sugar Mag- Magic uh, Primal Scream, Scream of Delica uh, Tupac's first album uh, Tupacalypse and um, in hip hop uh, it was. I think it was. It was a very interesting because you've got um, A Tribe Called Quest The Low End Theory comes out um, which is obviously going to be up there, always discussed with the the, the real top level of the greatest hip hop albums of all time. Yeah, it's my favourite. Yeah, you're just on the kind of cusp of what they call the golden era there, aren't you, Pete? Yeah, I think, yeah, you've, you've got Cypress Hill's debut album comes up uh, in 91 as well. Um, and, oh, so um, I saw a documentary recently with uh, Muggs, DJ Muggs, saying that he had a record collection of 150 records that he did that album with, and now he's got a record collection of 350,000, and he still can't knock out the same sort of album. Really? Yeah. No, I can, I can, I can imagine. Well, it's like when you listen to something like Cypress Hill, um, I think it's it's diff- it must be difficult to keep up that level of creativity over over that. That longer time, I think. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so, um, and it was, and they were very different as well, weren't they? I mean, they were, they were, they were talking about other, slightly other things. I mean, it was gangster rap to a certain extent, but they talked a lot yeah, about. It's just like the drums they were using, the meters and skull snaps, and a lot of like really hard hitting funk, which was kind of odd at the time. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the other album that I wanted to mention in hip hop as well, which I think is a great album, is um, Main Source. Uh, Breaking Athens yes. came out that year. Last Professor, what a fucking G. That yeah. is such an album, man. Um, you know, uh, looking at the front door. And interestingly as well in hip-hop, so Main Source, uh, Breaking Atoms, I believe the track is called um, Live at the Barbecue, which is Naz's mm-hmm. first ever recorded verse. Yeah. yeah. So he does a year and a half later, the 10 tracks of, obviously... I'll let you fill in the gaps. Illmatic. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Boom. You know. Boom. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's obviously sort of hugely um, significant. And then um, I, just before I pass over to Martin, who I know is, is, uh, has chosen 91 as well, there's just two albums that I wanted to mention that are just sort of very, I think are very much that 91 sound. Um, and that is um, 808 State released XL. And yes, the, K- yes. the KLF released the White Room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so it's just starting to tip into rave culture in this country, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think the, um, I mean, eight to eight state. I mean, that's just uh, they're such an incredible group. I remember when I was like a kid. I mean, I would have been seven in '91, so I, I can remember having um, a couple of eight to eight state uh, tracks on on sort of cassettes you buy as a kid. You know, those hits compilations kind of mm-hmm. things. And you listen to things like eight to eight, and you know, it's, it's like so different from from the kind of stuff you're hearing that much on the radio and, and things like that. And then the White Room by the Careless is um is just sort of an unbelievable piece of work really do you know what I mean it's hugely influential just sort of goes across all genres and is amazing did you ever hear the urban myth that the KLF well it was a thing they recorded it they burnt a million pounds from their record deal they got paid a million to do their second album and they burnt it live on camera and it's not an urban myth I think that really happened yeah Yeah, 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 they filmed it didn't they but I, I, I mean I do remember reading an in, I read an interview, well, I've read a few interviews, I can't remember, but there was a focus on the KLF or an article in Q at some time, and basically they, they said, the interviewer said that they'd spoken to someone who was around them when they burned that million pounds, and who thinks that it did actually hit them at some point, the enormity of what they'd actually yeah. done. Do you know and what I mean? Like in it, 90, it's so, million pounds with inflation surely would have been like five billion in today's money. Yeah, it's, yeah. A lot. it's a significant sum of money, definitely. Yeah, I think it's about four point six mm-hmm. with the rate of inflation. Yeah. Thank you for that update <laughs> from the banks there. And then I believe they they either tried or tried and succeeded at deleting their back catalogue as well, didn't they? Yes, they, I think yes. they they deleted their songs and then that was it. And they also wrote a book called How to Write a Hit Record, and I think they actually made a hit record by using what they wrote in the book. I heard about that, yeah. yeah. I, I, I heard about it's that. like uh, the band Blues Traveller wrote the record The Hook, where they just took the piss out of the hookiest chords they could and yeah. uh, actually ended up being a hook. And, uh, <laughs> There's a story about Radiohead like that as well. I think it's... Um, my Iron Lung, where Johnny Greenwood and Tom York had a competition yeah. quite strong to, with the most chords in it. and came out of that. There we go, digressing. It was a very pivotal year because a very um, one album that really, really kind of changed my life was Chris Rea's Auberge. It was because Chris Rea was the first gig I ever went to. To be honest with you, I didn't even really like the album that much. I liked a couple of songs, still don't. I thought Chris Rea was all right. A mate of mine liked him, went to the gig. Anyway, so that's 1991. My old man used to love God's great banana skin. What year was that? Do you know what? Craig, what year was that? That wasn't bad, man. I've got time for this for you, but... Anyway, 1991. Okay. Um, yeah, um, I just want to say 50... I'm uh, sorry. 87 and 89, both great years. And I think, especially 89, was like the summer of love, whereas 91 is like Ultimont. It, a lot of things happened in 91 where um, the world changed. So we've got things like it's the final year of the Cold War. So a lot of weird things happening politically in Russia. Kuwait invasion, early 91. Bosnian War started in 1991. Okay. And also the Rodney King riots. Um, now, these are really important. Why I'm talking about these in a 
music mm. podcast is because they informed the music that came out in 91. I'm not going to go too much into hip-hop because Pete has more than covered that. But you have things like Ice-T's OG, New Jack City soundtrack, Boys in the Hood soundtrack. Um, you had your Public Enemy. You had um, also Ice Cube with his really... Um, oh, what, what album was that? Ice Cube. Um, not Predator. It was uh, Death Certificate, which is all about the whole Rodney King thing. So there was a lot of anger uh, amongst the you know the hip-hop community. Just being echoed pretty much again now. So, well, yes, it's happening again now. Um, a gangstar step in the arena as well, along with main sources breaking atoms, both groundbreaking. DJ Premier, obviously, genius. But anyway, I'm not going to carry on any more about hip-hop because, as I say, Pete has more than covered that. Um, however, more sort of um, dance music, I'm not really going to talk too much about that because Pete has mentioned it as well. You know, White Room, KLF, 808 State. Also, the Orbs debut album, uh, they became mm. huge, had a top 40 hit with the longest mm. single ever made. And that's a record that will never be beaten because it goes over 39 minutes, um, <laughs> 59 seconds. It's not a single, it's an EP. Um, so, yeah, a lot of really interesting experimental stuff happening in, in electronic music. It became music that you can start listening to at home as well as out and about. So you, around that time, you had bands like Leftfield and... Um, you know, those sorts of guys who are really sort of groundbreaking. So there's a lot going on. Alternative rock now. This is my area of uh, kind of expertise. Grunge, let's face it, um, Nirvana's Nevermind was a game changer. Pearl Jam's 10 was a game changer. Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger. Um, you've got bands like uh, Dinosaur Jr. had an album out. Yes, yes. Primus had an album out. Fucking Primus, yes. you know. Yes. Absolutely am- Stunning. Green Day had an album out. Okay, it's not um, a good also, album. Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins had an album yeah. out. You know, um, mm. another massive I mean, grunge. It just destroyed the whole musical landscape. Not just in guitar music, but it informed everything. It was the biggest cultural musical <laughs> moment we have ever had since the sixties. And also, we have other genres coming up. We're talking about. Um, psychedelic you've got you, you know new psychedelia at that time mercury rev came out with your self-esteem mm-hmm. um and you've album. got mm-hmm. recurring spaceman three came out you know coming off the back of um stuart kember leaving spiritualized then you've got an absolutely stunningly influential album almost invented a genre which is closely linked to another album by an 80s band who released an album up the year, which is seen as their best album. So obviously we've done them both. Spiderland by Slint, post-rock. It is an absolutely wonderful album. Very difficult, very troubling for the band to make. They had to go into therapy afterwards. And that's linked to Talk Talk's Laughing Stock. I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that one. They are are credited with inventing post-rock. The way that that album particularly was made. Now, as far as listening is concerned, I prefer Spirit of Eden and um, yeah. what's the other one? Spirit of Eden and Colour of Spring. Colour of Spring, that's it. I prefer those two, but they're just, they're just I don't know, there's probably a tiny little bit less space, more instrumentation, but Laughing Stock, the way it was recorded, 
where they basically were in a pitch black room. They have like 50 something session musicians throughout the recording of it. And they'd have separate parts and they'd have hours of just parts of music and they'd edit them together. And these things were recorded in a pitch black studio or with minimal candlelight. And it just created this atmosphere that, yeah, which now carries on through to, you know, any post rock band you want to you want to talk about it's just that you know the talk talk album is very quiet it's very restrained and then you've got post-rock guys like mogwai and explosions in the sky take that as a template but whack in a load of wall and noise in there which is exactly what i would do with any music but anyway. <laughs> um, very familiar with that yeah we are very familiar with that <laughs> you've also got a a rise in a um something that actually had a massive impact in kind of early 2000s indie dance music you had um don't laugh emf debut album right it's actually brilliant and it was a game changer Schubert did. it was it was like at the time seen as a pop records everyone thinks of unbelievable but mate it's some bangers on there and the the, the actual musicianship is fantastic the, the guitarist the bench then went on to do songwriting for like major pop stars I can't name any, but he did. Um, you also had Electronic came out, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark had an album out. Yes, yes. Um, Jesus, Jesus Jones had an album out, who were very similar to EMF. James had an album out as well. Um, so there was a lot going on in kind of the crossover between dance and indie, which now is like normal. Everybody's doing it. Is had an album out that year as well, Mark? I'm not sure. They may well have done. They may well have done. I haven't noted it down. Another massive, well, huge album again, but it's not their best, but it set them on the way to being, you know, um, what they are today. Leisure by Blur came out. Fantastic. Yes. Shoegaze yeah. Indie. What an album. I love every note on it. But anyway, I'm going to move on to my final thing, and I think Tom knows what's coming here. <laughs> yeah, I was are. waiting for it. <laughs> um, it's something that was kind of being built on in the 80s by bands like Jesus and Mary Chain, Cocteau Twins, all those guys. Um, My Bloody Valentine's Loveless came out. Now, this is, for me, one of the most important albums ever made in music. Yeah, you're not really the hardest about it, eh? <laughs> it's absolutely... The way it was recorded, it nearly bankrupt the record company. It took years to make. Um, I think there's a, there was a... Um, there's a rumour that it cost something like 50000 for for... Um, Kevin Shields to get a snare drum right or something. It took him weeks. <laughs> and he used to hang um, speakers out of the studio and play the music, play his guitar music to passing dogs so that he could see how the frequencies affected them, things like that. <laughs> Rumour, truth, I don't know. Nobody knows. But what it did is it absolutely changed the way guitar is played from that moment on through to now. I'll give you a really silly example. So as you, if you've heard Loveless, you'll know it sounds like it keeps going in and out of tune and it's just kind of wavy and dreamy and it's like, it doesn't sound right, but it really is. Listen to Yellow by Coldplay and that... That's just an MBV, you know, literally. Everybody does it now. Everybody does the whammy bar while they're playing chords. I do it. I'd love to be like MBV, but I'm not. But, you know, it's the, the influence of that album is just massively yeah, it's huge um and of course you had slow dive had an album out that time as well that in that year as well i think it was the second album um yeah, i can't remember what it's called now but anyway yeah you got slow dive mbv um, dinosaur junior are sometimes lumped in they're not shoegaze really but they're lumped in with that kind of thing swerve driver one of my favorite bands their debut album definitely were called 
uh, shoegaze at the time, but kind of more grunge rock, I guess, but absolutely brilliant band. Caius had an album out. Um, Scream of Delica, again, another groundbreaking album. Um, Primal Scream went on to be relevant for, well, for probably the rest of the decade and well into the next one. Um, Temple of the Dog, I didn't mention that. Grunge, great album. This, all these albums, they keep coming back to me, and it's just, it was just a rich year. But why I think it's so rich and why I think the year was so important is what I'll talk about next quickly is Lollapalooza. Okay, you had Jane's Addiction, they were splitting up, playing their last tour. So sad for them to split up. And then you had people like Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, Ice Cube. Uh, who else was on that bill? But, you know, it had all the Jim Rose Circus sideshow and all that stuff. It was just, it was like that kind of embodied what was happening in that year where you have this summer of love, but now all this stuff is going on. It's a bit like what we're going through right now. People are going, oh, we're really sick of this. And the music reflected it perfectly. Not only did it reflect the political climate and how people were thinking, and you had your disaffected youth into your Nirvana going, oh, someone's listening to us. But also, um, what it, it was springboarded. So 1991, I'm not saying is the best year, but I'm saying it's the most revolutionary year since the 60s musically, because everything changed. I mean, what happened in the next few years is just, you know, the amount of impressive music that came out the rise in all these different genres it was like it was kind of already branching out from the 80s but here it's like kind of i don't know there's so many more nodes to the branches there was so much going on for me 91 is the is the most important year in music i i think that um that may have had something to do with the the rise of the cd at that time that probably played a part. Yeah, mm-hmm. the ability of music. They got it right in '91. In the in the late '80s, a lot of CDs are tinny. There's not a lot of low end. They didn't really get it right. But in 1991, that's when that's when quality production started happening in digital records. Um, also, music TV was very important. MTV played music. You had 120 minutes, Headbangers Ball. Um, you had MTV Raps. You had all these shows that catered for specific genres of music but they would cross over beavis and butthead for christ's sake and then music tv in 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 that era was really really good and british music tv as well i think you'd had a few years of um mtv where the novelty of the video had worn off a bit it wasn't yeah. just about the video uh, it was making that video into art and saying something meaningful in 91 um so that's why you've got the difference between say thriller and 80 82 i think that came out back in 82 um and that comes out the video is a big campy dance routine but then what michael jackson's doing in 91 with the music video where he stretches the medium and makes a political statement with uh with the black or white video with the uh the reference to the black panthers and morphing and it's just a better quality video and that time in the uk as well you had the kind of neo soul backlash you had young disciples um with apparently nothing and there's nothing like this of omar and that's a great song good stuff man yeah yeah Yeah, nothing like this is a great great song Mm. yeah it was kind of like they were harking back to the sort of uh, northern soul days um yarborough and peoples as well and Mm um evelyn king and a lot of stuff that then got sampled later on in dance music there was Mm. a real good neo soul backlash in the early 90s yeah, I forgot to mention Massive Attack's Blue Lines. I mean, you did forget that. That's a game changer. You know? We've also had two people talk about 91, nobody's mentioned Diamonds and Pearls. 
Martin. Yeah. Um, I was surprised. I didn't hear you say that much about Pearl Jam's ten. I think, mate. It doesn't need to be saying it because if we're going to do these regular podcasts, believe me, you'll be hearing about Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling he might say that. Yeah. I didn't actually get that point, mate. Point, mate. Very, very, very later on in the day, and um, in fact, when I left school and I did my first job, it was it was kind of um, a disabled carer and up in the Midlands and I found Pearl Jam's 10 really late in the day. It would have been like maybe 98, 99 in the CD player that I inherited. And it was the only CD I had in the flat that time when I'd left home. It fucking <laughs> blew my mind. Absolutely it could have gone either way. It could have, it could have driven you mad or given you a, you know, a good time. I'm glad to hear Even Flow is still one of my favourite, favourite tracks. And I love the Ruby Mirror remix of it. It's so good. It's all about it's black. A beautiful album. The last song in it does it for me. But anyway, we're just going to, for another day, discussing music. And speaking of other days, I think Tom's got the latest entry in terms of contemporary times. Uh, 2003. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I thought about this a lot because there's there's really good arguments for lots of years because if if you look at the, the surveys that have been done, 69 always wins because there's Woodstock, the two well, hey. albums and Abbey Road um, and The Birth of Punk is 69. Or 71 always goes up there with like Marvin Gaye and John Lennon's Imagine. 77, The Birth of Post Punk. I'm really surprised you didn't go for 1984, Dan, because of Purple Rain, Whams Make It, it Big it and I think that was it was possibly my second favourite. Seventy eight was up there as well, um, but I, I think in the end, just because of the sheer volume of tracks that I appreciated when I made that playlist, it, that's why eighty seven got the nod. Not because of anything important that happened; it was more to do with just the sheer volume of songs that I liked in from that year. And like, I love a lot of albums from 1991 as, as m- most of you know, I'm a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan. And obviously that's the year that they started. The thing that the reason why I didn't go for 1991 is 1991. We remember as really important with hindsight, but the thing is at the time people didn't care. You know, the two mm. biggest selling albums are Brian Adams and fucking Michael Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, like, like my bloody Valentine's loveless in 12 years post-release, sold 225,000 copies. Spiderland, in in its lifetime, has only sold 50,000 copies, and nobody even mentioned it as being a good album, like, in, journalistically, until 1998. So, so the thing is, so when we look back at it, 1991 was really important. But the thing is, when I tried to pick a year, I wanted to pick a year where the the general public were getting into this and this is why 2003 is really important because 2003 uh so the first ever popular music streaming service was last fm from 2002 i know there was one the underground music archive from 93 but 2003 saw the launch of myspace and the itunes store which was early and popular back in the day as well yeah, um, but like the iTunes store and MySpace completely changed the way that everybody discovered music and the way we listened to it. And that had another side effect in that it really drove down the cost of albums. So in like the 1980s and 90s, a CD would cost you a tenner, which in today's money is like 30 or 40 quid. Whereas in 2003, I used to go to Virgin Megastore and you could buy five for 30 quid. So 
it was you were able to get more albums and it made more albums accessible um for example, and it made the music that wouldn't have sold well before sell really well. The the one that comes to mind uh, is Dizzy Rascal's debut album, Boy in the Corner. Now I know it won the Mercury Music Prize at the end of the at the end of that year, but in two thousand and three, that sold two hundred and fifty thousand copies um, and achieved loads of, of acclaim and obviously kickstarted the whole grime scene that we've got today. Not my thing, but there you go. Whereas mm-hmm. Nevermind, which was an album by an already established artist by the end of 1991 had only shipped about 90,000 copies because that's all they'd printed. It only really started selling well in 1992, um, which I find bizarre. Starting with 2003, let's start with singles. So there are some really, really important releases in 2003, arguably important in, in general. So we had the release of, I don't particularly love any of these, but they're quite important. So we've got Crazy in Love by Beyonce, Toxic by Britney Spears, Hey Ya by Outcast, Ignition Remix by R. Kelly, and Milkshake by Khalees. Um, they're all, if you go to any nightclub in the country, they still play them all the I, time. I think, I think I had that as my exact playlist the other day. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, the other, uh, the other John, thing, yeah. Which is your favourite out of those five? <laughs> uh, Good question. Great that, question. Yeah, that's like asking which part of the shit sandwich I want to eat. I'll probably go from Hey Ya by Outcast. Um, it's a, li- a little, little bit harsh, isn't that? I mean, Khalees is a, a, a great artist oh, who works really, with Farrell Williams and the Neptunes. Yeah. I mean, oh. that, that, I mean, Milkshake is a Neptunes producer yeah. as well. Don't get, don't get me wrong, like, she's a great artist. Oh, that's not my favourite. That's not my favourite. It's not my favourite of her songs. Another really important song that came out that year, important because I think it's probably about to chart again now, um, is Where Is The Love by Black Eyed Peas. Is that year. Um, now, 2003 is a year that guitar-based music, which is my thing, really hit the mainstream more than it ever really had before. If you go down like the top 100 tracks of the year, you've got tracks by White Stripes, Jet, The Dandy Warhols, um, that year, The Shins released Shoots Too Narrow, which in a Hollywood film, Natalie Portman in Garden State <laughs> describes that album as it will change your life, I swear. It really will. It's great. That was the soundtrack of my summer for years. Um, you've got like fairly big indie bands really hitting the stadiums, like Placebo released Sleeping With Ghosts, Muse released Absolution. They're great albums, not necessarily the best work of those artists, but it really launched them into the mainstream um I, I i hate to say this but like coldplay released probably their only half decent album in 2003 yeah. and and that influenced so many people you go to music from the late 2000s even today Silver was a banger. yeah um but it's like keen imagine dragons cult code line they they're all taking oh. that blueprint of that coldplay album people um, are still copying coldplay yeah, yeah. absolutely because yeah. 2003 was the year that I went to university. I remember buying an ME and it gave me Rock and Roll Riot Volume 1 CD on the front, which had like British Sea Power and the, yep. the hot, hot. I'm getting to those. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was loving that. Yeah, it was great. And it's also the year that gave us the darkness, which for for, our, for my age group, like Dan and I, we all remember the darkness and it was great fun. Um, other important things that happened in 2003. So, 
2003 was just at the beginning of when I was wanting to be a music journalist and it really was the launch of this sort of Oxford music scene. Uh, the debut releases by 65 Days of Static came out that year which added drum and bass and electronics to post-rock music in a way nobody had done before and really influenced that scene. Uh, youth Movie Soundtrack Strategies released their debut EP which is actually surprisingly heavy but they mixed like proggy and mathy elements into indie rock which led to the inception of Fold um, and that falls obviously changed India a lot in the late 2000s and the 2010s. Um, another big release that year was Echoes by The Rapture. Um, that really took like the angular indie of bands like Gang of Four. That's, that's a great. That's a great album. Yeah. And they, they added electronics to it in a way that had the way that sort of. I think it's what people from 1991 possibly had in their head when they were trying to do it. And Echoes by the Rapture, you can hear that when you listen to like Block Party and The Bravery and bands like that who had a really big influence. Um, It was the debut EP from Arcade Fire came out that year and they went on to be huge. Um, But yeah, other releases that year, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, The Postal Service, which is just a beautiful album. Death Cab for Cutie released Transatlanticism, another beautiful album. Uh, Super Fairy Animals, Phantom Power, My Morning Jacket released a great album that year. The Thrills, So Much for the City. Cat Power released the album, which has He War on it. British Sea Power's debut, which is just brilliant. And Phil Spector produced a Star Sailor record, which is quite interesting. But then moving away from indie, um, at the heavy end, you've got Deftones released their self-titled album, um, which really was the first time that anybody had taken the comedy, corny stuff out of new metal and made it this really sort of heavy, pure thing. Is that the one with Minerva? Minerva Yeah, it is the one with Minerva on it. That's so shoegaze, it really is. And well, yeah, I remember you saying it's it's a very important track, and it, that was on that album. That that hit that made the charts. That's how I discovered yeah. Deftones. It's beautiful. Um, two supergroups released albums that year. A Perfect Circle released Thirteenth Step, um, and Billy Corgan made his only ever happy album with the band's one, which is which is definitely worth checking out. Um, Ocean Size released their debut, which really did launch a genre of its own because they blended grunge and post rock, um, and like. They, they redefined alternative prog. Those aren't my words. They're the words of Mike Portnoy from Dream Theatre. Um, uh, 2003 saw the release of Fallen by Evanescence, which, yeah. uh, like, that really brought bands like Nightwish. I, I mean, I'm not an Evanescence fan. I went it, back to it. I went back to it the other week. Um, and it's, my mum loves it. <laughs> for, now, now, free from the, the, the way you would look at it at the time, there, there are some half-decent melodies on it. It's not a good album by... By any sense, but it's okay. Yeah, but it it, it really defined. It really sort of it had a real cultural impact. Like Kerrang! Oh yeah, so sure. They jumped straight into like Nightwish, Lacuna Coil, Arch Enemy. All these bands made it really big. And I think the blueprint of Evanescence is what went, what sort of made Paramore what they were as well. Um, mm-hmm. also, yeah. Also, metal albums, Linkin Park, Corn, Godsmack, uh, Limp Bizkit, all released albums that year. Um, the Scottish music scene, which Martin knows is one of my favourites. Area Graham released Sleep and Release, which is a brilliant album that you should all listen to. It's um, a great album, yeah. It's really hard to listen to because there's so they try to do so much in it, but it's regularly listed in the top 10 Scottish albums of all time. And without it, we wouldn't have bands like The Twilight Sad and Frightened Rabbit and the people they've influenced. Biffy Clyro released Vertigo of, Vertigo of Bliss. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's such a good album. And they started work on Infinity Land that year. Um, they've never topped either of those two albums, but no. they've become a cultural phenomenon because of that. Mogwai's album, Happy Songs for Happy People, came out that year, which is not their best album, but it was the first album that they ever had that made the top 200 in the US. And I think that's the time when bands like this will destroy you and Caspian really took notice of what Mogwai were doing. Um, Explosions in the Sky released their third album, The Earth is Not a Cold Day, Dead Place, which is definitely the best kind of album. Most famous one, isn't yeah. it? Most well, yeah, it got them got them played on TV. Yeah. Um now According to Enemy and Rock Sound, not me, um, the album that defined British post-hardcore came out in 2003, and that was Funeral for a Friend, Casually Dressed and Deep in Conversation. Um, and off the back of that, that made it really, really big. That was all over Enemy and Rock Sound, and, and that really launched that whole scene with Ruben, 100 Reasons, Hell is for Heroes, Lost Profits, all the bands I was going to see as a teenager. I'm going to move away from rock music quickly because I know that... So hip-hop... Um, Kanye West, the college dropout, although it actually officially dropped in 2004, was leaked in 2003. So I'm claiming it. Um, and obviously that's been claimed as moving hip hop back away from the violent lyrics and product placement of like 50 Cent and that's that ilk. And, and Kendrick Lamar, Childish Gambino, they all cite that as an influence. Jay Z released the Black album and then retired. Um, oh, did he? Did he, he stay retired? Because I haven't heard of that guy. He, he came back two <laughs> years later. But he, he I think his, his announcing his retirement made his back catalogue more popular at the time. Electronic Music, M83 released Dead Cities, Red Seas and Lost Ghosts, um, which, although it wasn't that famous, um, is really important because M83's electronic music has influenced loads of stuff coming out now. I mean, M83 recently did the soundtrack for Made in Chelsea, if you know what that is. Um, and they were really influential. Um, Fortet, Manitoba, Animal Collective all released great records. Um, the Knife released Heartbeats in 2003. Yes. Um, Uncle released Never Neverland. Yes. Um, yeah, Craftwork and Massive Attack both released albums that year. Uh, Basement Jacks released Kish Cash. So Electronic was pretty good. Um, I'm going to briefly mention classical music because I kind of have to. Um, Karl Heinz Stockhausen, um, in the last few years of his life, had a massive burst of productivity, released some really interesting stuff. Uh, Michael Nyman and Philip Glass both released quite a lot of really interesting stuff as well. Um, moving on to jazz, uh, Decca Jazz released an album that year, which is interesting because they are a collective of female jazz musicians, and it's designed to give exposure to female jazz musicians. It's a pretty decent record and was aiming to do something great. Amy Winehouse released Frank in 2003. That's her best record. And quite nice. important. Um, 2003 proved the dangers of, of overhyping an album, Metallica's St. Anger. <laughs> uh, I think I can hear some still drums in the background somewhere. Yeah. Godspeaky Black Emperor split up, which made me really, really sad. Um, Black Rub Motorcycle Club released their second album, Take Them On On Your yes. Own. Got One critical... of my all-time favourites. It's a great album. Got loads Amazing. of critical acclaim and probably got them dropped from their record label. Yeah. Um, on, on a more positive note, S Club 7 announced they were splitting up. <laughs> Didn't they become S Club, like, just S Club first? I think, I no, think the, they... the juniors were a separate project. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. 
There were S- multiple branches of the S yeah. club. I think the main S club with the people who were in the seven, it was them who split up in 2003. We've um, already spent too much time on this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Nina, some really, it was a really sad year. Like Nina Simone died that year. Johnny Cash died. Morris Kibb and Barry White died. Elliot Smith died and left behind, left behind the demos that became from a basement on the hill, which is a lovely album. Hmm. Um, the Dixie Chicks got in trouble for criticising George W. Bush's incursion into Iraq. Google that, it's hilarious. Um, and I think I remember that. I think I remember Yeah, that. I remember that. Yeah, there's only... They got a lot of stick, didn't they? They did get a lot of stick. And so there's only one, al- one album I've got left to mention. Because I don't um, know records, albums that were punk at the time that were anti-Bush. I can't know what the titles of them were, but... I mean, they know Powderfinger released a really popular album in 2003. I don't remember that much about it. Um, Hail to the Thief came out in 2003. Yes. Um, it was That was a great Radiohead album because it built on what they were doing in Kid A and started down that more experimental path, but it also had singles. So, like, Amnesiac, I really enjoyed, but it didn't sell very well and there weren't really any major singles on it, whereas... Um, Hail to the Thief had There There, which is the second highest charting Radiohead single ever, um, second only to Paranoid Android, um, and that was on it. So that's a great record as well. So lots of really, really good records that that stand up. Like when you listen back to them, the production on them still sounds like you could listen to it today, whereas like some of those albums from 1991 haven't held up necessarily quite as well. So I think that's the reason I went for 2003 is because there's more to go back to. There was a lot of good music and, and a lot of really influential stuff as well. Um, and the influential stuff sold and people knew about it. Yeah. The only thing I say in defence of every other year, and it's not necessarily 2003 that's to blame here, but I think this is many a Southwest centric point of view. I don't really like the hold which new metal had across the Southwest and still does to this day. Absolutely. We, I'm with you 100%. When we had really, really strong other nights that kept off, like for instance, in Plymouth, we had a night called Neon Kibosh, which really sort of focused in on that kind of hot gossip, new indie electro, which was far more interesting in my view and died out far quicker than it should have. Yeah. Yeah. I I think post-hardcore in 2003 is what got rid of that new metal hold to a degree. The problem with new new metal, it wasn't so much the music because the musicianship was brilliant. It was the juvenile (coughs) toxic masculinity as you know, mm. when Woodstock happened and uh, that terrible stuff when Limp Bizkit were playing, that was that was what I ate me up about new metal. I was yeah. Deftones, even though they get dumped in with new metal, they shouldn't. Cause they're a very different band. Mm. It was quite a short-lived, um, a short-lived cultural impact that it had, though, because I think, uh, in defence of two thousand and three, I think two thousand, two thousand and one, you've got they're the prime candidates for new metal central uh, years when Lincoln Park's got um, Hybrid Theory out, and um, there, there was that, there was that um, Limp Biscuit uh, album, uh, Hot Dog flavoured water, chocolate starfish or whatever it was called. Um, that's that's kind of the nadir of that period. By yeah, 2003, absolutely. I think some of the bands that Tom's talked about have kind of cleared the scene out a bit. The era which I ran to dance music for Salvation because I really didn't get involved with that. And yeah, I did the same. The death that's of hip-hop that was just uh, horrible to watch. Overdone. Rage mm-hmm. Against... But I think, but I, think that, no. I think that the new metal 
you know, filled, served a certain purpose and filled a certain sort of gap in the musical market, didn't it? And I think, you know, yeah, a lot of it was kind of watered down to an extent. It was very angry, but it was like, it was pop music, basically. Yeah. But, um, but I think that, you know, young people gravitate to something that they think is, you know, has that kind of rebellion and anger in it, And I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, and a lot of the new metal, it was only on the surface, that rebellion and that anger. But, it, yeah. but I think young people just kind of gravitate towards that, didn't you? But then you then said you then went towards dance music, Dave. I mean, I, I still stuck it, stuck it out and listened to hip-hop, basically. That's when I really discovered hip-hop. I mean, all of my friends are into new metal and... You know, I've, I think some of them probably still are, you know, quite heavily into it to this day, really. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, there's a lot of good records in that movement. I don't I think it'd be arrogant of us to dismiss it entirely. Um, but I think by by the by the early two thousands, the best records are, are long gone. Uh, the, the the best corn records are the nineties records, for instance. Um, they they'd all done their best work, and then they found a way of introducing it to teenage kids, watering it down, and then they got maybe two thousand two thousand one those couple of years out of getting chart hits out of that kind of music by 2003 yeah. people had wisened up a bit and i think it became, uh, a, became a different thing still juvenile myself i was trying to find my own scene and at that time it was one or two years before dubstep came around and it was kind of the end of grime and i was in south london djing that scene and getting involved with dub sound clashes and stuff so that was a whole new genre of things to get involved with me but I just lost interest. Some of the bands evolved really well because, I mean, Incubus started as a proper new metal band yeah. and they evolved and got better. And I think Deftones yeah. did very much the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think that so some Linkin of Linkin Park as well. Yeah, I mean, Linkin Park evolved. I still in- love Shut Up and Drive Far Away is one of my favourite Deftones tracks. Uh, it's It's got to be... I, I don't know whether to call it Moana or Mona, but that that track on uh, on the self titled album is 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 really really good. I I like big loud melancholic music, and that Deftone self titled album is is just the epitome of that. It's my driving album to this day because it makes you drive fast. I think not- with I think what the Deftones did was they showed that you can make really heavy music. Um, with really strong beats and stuff, which the new metal bands were, were doing musically, but without all of that posturing and like, oh, I'm going to break up everything, you know, just that whole male, like adolescent, just like puberty kind of thing about it. That's why yeah. it didn't connect with me. I was, it wasn't aimed at me anyway in the first place. Yeah. So that's why I was listening to Radiohead and probably music from the 80s back then when that was going on. But it's just the Deftones were one of the perfect bands to show you can still be really really heavy really really kind of like what of one of a better word hip with the young people because they look like skaters on stage and <laughs> without any of that kind of really bad attitude it's just that kind of just grow the fuck up take your piercings out and go and get a job you know what i mean they kind of <laughs> no, I mean, no, like, just uh, stop blaming the world because you're white and you're privileged and you've got rich parents. <laughs> you've got, you're listening to you, you sound like a proper oh. grumpy old man now. I am a grumpy old <laughs> man these days, man. But I'm allowed to be. I lived through, I, my, my formative years were in the 90s. I started loving music in 1990. Uh, so, I yeah. think it's interesting you say that because I mean, a, a, 
from the perspective of how we've picked our years, I was born in 87, so I don't remember it. Um, I, 91, I was four. So I don't really remember 91 at the time. Uh, 89, I, I don't remember. Uh, I was two. I was. I think my earliest memory is from when I was about two, when I rubbed an entire chocolate biscuit over my, my face just to <laughs> amuse my mum. That's like my earliest memory. That's probably about 89, but it's got nothing to do with music. <laughs> 2003 is, uh, is a year that I can... I can talk about from, from memory. So it's the only one. And it's, it's just interesting because uh, a lot of people have said about their formative years and, and things like that. And it's, it's interesting how music can, uh, can have an impact on your environment at the time and how it can stick in your memory and certain events will be linked to certain songs. And, so when I was coming in to, to pick 87, I was coming in completely cold because I don't have any, anything that I can picture from that year. I'm just, focusing on purely on songs that I've listened to at a later year. Um, so it's interesting um, to see how people can um, associate that. And the reason I brought that up is because Martin mentioned historical events. Um, and that was a big part of what shaped the culture. Whereas when I, when I looked at 1987, I didn't go for, uh, for what was going on in the world in 87, because that didn't, that didn't speak to me as much as, as maybe the events of 91 would speak to Martin. So I just thought that was, that was an interesting insight into people's mindsets, really. Do you know what's interesting about what you just said there, Dan, is that, um, my decision to choose 91 is like you said, it's based not just on the music, it's based on a lot of other things. I mean, I was basically then starting to learn about social issues. I was learning about things like racism, um, sexism, you know, um, mm. sort of social inequality, all of that stuff through listening to that. Well, usually it was the early Seattle scene music back then. So, mm. you know, Pearl Jam especially taught me a lot about what was going on in the world. You only have to listen to a song like Jeremy, all, all about male mental health is right there. So it my my the music itself back then, um, not all of it was probably the best I've heard. Um, so, but it was so important because it informed what I was going through at that time, a total kind of, um, character change. I was was becoming part of the world. So something like Pearl Jam's 10 or Temple of the Dog spoke to me because it was about real issues I was learning about. But this brings me to a point that Tom made. So what, yeah, what I'm basically saying is Dan, you're, you're, decision to choose 87 was probably a little bit more objective musically. That's, that's how I tried to do it. Yeah, which is great, you know. Um, but Tom made a point about um, saying about band the, the albums back in 91 maybe don't hold up so well as now as they did then. I would disagree with a lot of them. I think a lot of them probably hold up even more than they did back then. And you mentioned record sales, and you can't conflate record sales with influence. No. Yeah, record sales are exactly. irrelevant. It's all about, you think about it, think about it, right? What's happened is a record, say in 1991, sells absolutely bucket loads. Michael Bolton, who's listening to that now? A few housewives. A record like Loveless sells very little. Who's listening to, to that now? Pretty much any alternative rock guitar music, you know, yeah. guitar fan. I did listen to it the other week on your yeah. recommendation. Oh, it's a wonderful album. It's, it is. I'm and not, it does hold up. It's still important. It is good. I think his point was it didn't sell at the time, and it yeah. was retrospectively a, a hit. Yeah. But I think as a counter-argument even to that, um, you know, um, <clears throat> the people that are talking about it now are, you know, our age, and I didn't have the money to go and buy records, and then later on as I came on, we were 
part of the millennial generation that just downloads things from the internet. So record sales aren't really going to come into our jurisdiction because we weren't really affluent buyers of records. It's about influence. And something like Loveless is being talked about by music fans now who are just getting into music. So they're being introduced to an album like Loveless. It's not just Loveless, but there's many albums like it. But because there are bands like, I'm trying to think, you know, someone like The Horrors, for instance, I mean, they've been around a while, but they're massively Loveless. Go back a little bit further, Placebo, Love Loveless, and vocal about Radiohead. You know, you've got electronic acts saying they listen to Loveless. To to kind of add to that, uh, Elf on a slight tangent, but uh, this is 2020 at the time of recording. They just released Final Fantasy VII's remake to talk about video games for a second. And um, there was, there's a play that's alluded to in that game that's not featured, and it's called Loveless. And it wasn't until this year that I actually read an interview with, um, um, the guy who uh, was involved in the production of it, I think his name is Tetsuya Nomura. Um, he turns out to be a massive fan of Loveless um, by My Bloody Valentine. And that's the reason why that that play is named as such in that game. So yeah. that it even branches out into other media it does. Uh, as well. And the Japanese are mad for shoegaze. Yeah. They absolutely love it. Yeah, there's, there's they've always been massive audio files, haven't they? So yeah, and in is an audio file genre of yeah. music. It's all about texture yeah. and sound over songs. The Japanese, uh, the Japanese way of looking at in albums is very interesting. I found out recently that it was actually illegal to dance in nightclubs until 2017. <laughs> 2017, it was illegal to dance in in nightclubs in in Japan. This is what I'm hearing. I haven't fact checked it, so it, I may be completely wrong. But um, the apparently they also discourage people from dancing uh, by putting fruit machines on dance floors to take up room. The Japanese will look at pieces of music as as music, but it's the dancing um, element of it is completely removed. They don't listen to music to to dance to. It's it's a strange strange thing. I think we could talk a lot about each of the individual years that we've we've all brought up. Um, I think the the point of this discussion is not to get to the bottom of which is the greatest year. That's not going to happen. Um, everyone's going to have their own uh, opinions because of the fact that music is um, formed uh, in your mind by how external factors impact your listening experience. We would like to hear what people think. That is why we're making a podcast because it's so easy to talk about this stuff. Um, we did want to take the time to uh, discuss things that we've been listening to in the current situation. So if you're listening later um, uh, than 2020, uh, we're currently locked down in our houses. We're not able to socialize. Um, so music becomes a large part of our daily entertainment routine. It certainly has for me. I, I've been listening to more music now uh, than I have done it perhaps for the last six months. Uh, but prior to the, the situation we're in, um, I, uh, I've been listening to a massive amount of music. 2020 actually was on my shortlist for greatest years of all time. It has been that good uh, this year uh, in terms of discovering new, not just new music but old music as well um but just releases from 2020 you've got the weekend uh that's a great album uh, a lot of 80s uh pop influence which is right up my street uh, that's a great album in your eyes is uh I t- i'm tipping for record of the year i really love that the saxophone at the end is a is a great a great touch on that um you've got you've got childish gambito had a new record out it's not as good as this last one but it's it's okay um you've got um 
Thundercat had a decent record. Um, Tame Impala's um, record this year, um, The Slow Rush, that's a really good, uh, really good album. Um, Fiona Apple, she's released a, she's come back with a good album festival in a few years and I've really got into that. It's very strange, very folky, but uh, very good. Um, and uh, you, you, but there's there's been um, an, an enormous amount of releases. Dua Lipa's um, Future Nostalgia, that's possibly my favourite album so far this year. It's just a great set of well-written pop songs. Her voice is great. The production is phenomenal. It's a brilliant sounding record and it's very warm. Um, and I'm sure when we're allowed to go out again, uh, you'll hear that a lot in clubs. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good piece of pop music. The album I wanted to talk about, though, um, that I discovered was, um, was Emotion. Uh, by Carly Rae Jepsen. It's actually from 2015. Um, and I wanted to speak about it. Not, 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 it's not my favorite record that I've listened to in the last few weeks. Um, it's up there. It's a very good piece of pop, but I wanted to broaden people's horizons. I know that a lot of people on this podcast, um, not just you guys as guests, but people that may listen to this will be looking for, um, different recommendations. And I don't think you can go too much, uh, too much worse than listening to Emotion by Carly Rae Jepsen. It's it's just wall to wall bangers. You put it on and there's no there's no tracks that I would skip. Um, you've got some some great eighties pop production. The the hooks are just incessant. You put turn it on and you'll be singing along within one two tracks. It's quite varied in terms of a, a pop record. There's different tempos, different sounds. There's a very print sounding track called uh, All That, which uh, is produced uh, by Devonte Han Devonte Hines, who is um, Blood Orange, formerly Lightspeed Champion. Listen to this record and it's great you can't go into it with any prejudice of oh it's a pop record i'm not going to like it there's nothing of substance to it the lyrics aren't going to change your life it's not going to bring a message it's not there's not there's nothing in it uh politically it's not loaded with any deeper meaning it's just enjoyable and sometimes we need that in in music sometimes you just want to put a record on and say there isn't any agenda with this record it's just wonderfully written pop it's not by one particular voice or uh, from one mind uh it's uh, an, an ensemble cast almost like like a tv show like the sopranos of producers making great songs great hooks they're all over it and it she delivers it with the right amount of um of almost um selfless projection and um, there isn't a lot of read into Carly Rae Jepsen on the record. It is just her singing songs written by other people, but it just works. And I think that there are, there, there need to be more records like that. So if you, if you are ever going to listen to me uh, recommending an album, I would take that one, give it a listen. If you don't like it, probably never listen to anything I recommend again. I did listen to it. Um, and I didn't, I didn't mind it. Although I will say it just reminded me so much of churches that I went back and listened to churches instead. It's, it's great. It's great. But a lot of the tracks sound so much like church's first album, which is a banging album as well. Um, but yeah, they have two for the price of one in that. They're both very similar albums. I marginally prefer the, well, I definitely prefer the church's one, but, but you know, it it was, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was fun to listen to. Did it broaden your horizons, Tom? Well, not massively, but, but it was an enjoy, it was an enjoyable way to spend a few minutes. Tom won't be on next week's podcast. (laughs) What I gleaned from the album is um, I found it to be very similar to 
The Bastard album that came out very recently, which just sounds like a bizarre tangent, but it had a very 80s feel, which is the same as I found with this album. You kind of get the same from the Drive soundtrack that was the film with Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Very similar sort of thing. It's kind of like leaning a little bit on Italo 80s house, and it's kind of living a bit on the sort of Miami Vice type of 80s electro. Don't they call it Vaporwave? The vaporwave is a kind of different genre, but yeah, more multimedia, isn't it? Vaporwave. It's not just musical; it's all about video. And the, yes, because they have the those aesthetic. Simpsons memes. The Simpsons memes with the filters. Yeah. It's, it's the important. whole aesthetic. Yeah. It reminded me of all of all of that kind of vibe. You know, that was what I was getting when I was listening to it. Sort of that. Um, I don't even know if it was encapsulated in a genre per se, but the kind of new eighty sound, which people are kind of jumped upon in 2014, 15, 16. And it was, yeah. It was nice. I, I, I love that genre, as you went. Vaporwave, Italo, Disco, 80s, Miami Vice kind of driving, fucking Lamborghini, Kunchash, cocaine-driven, Marlboro Red bullshit. I love. That's my shit. <laughs> the music, the music. We'll clarify. Yeah. <laughs> the music. Yes. I, I listened to the album Dan, and um, it just made me think. It made me feel that I was only going to enjoy that album if it, I was a twenty-seven-year-old mum on the school run listening to Heart FM. <laughs> oh, that is. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think I look twenty-seven. Nah, I, 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 I jest. It, it does have that whole kind of Heart FM thing about it, but I listened to it properly. And it's really well produced. It the is. Songs are good. The chord progressions aren't your usual boring first, fourth, fifth thing that everyone does. Um, There's no four chords of doom. Yeah, <laughs> your four chords of doom, and that that was refreshing. And I just thought, yeah, it's nice. He's got a good voice. But if I never hear it again, it, then it's that's fine. But yeah, it, it's well done. It's not aimed at me. It's not meant for me. It's not aimed at me either. I'm just no. going to clarify that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, I just I just couldn't connect with it emotionally in any way whatsoever. It's just, you know, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not for me. It's not part of my musical world. But I'm sure that, like yourself, you rate it highly, you hear something different in it. So recently I've been listening to uh, a rapper called Bahamadia. Um So her, her debut album, uh, it's called Collage. It came out in uh, 1996, um, which is a great album. It's all very um, kind of neo-soul-influenced. Um, Jay Diller, Tribe Called Quest, The Uma, that kind of sound. Hmm. Um, so, but, yeah, Collage is a great record. I've only discovered her um, very recently. And um, her second album was called BB Queen, um, which was released in 2000, um, which is a great album as well. Very, very short. Um, it's seven tracks long, which is the same as um, Pusha T's Daytona, which came out in 2018, which which was actually um, seven uh, seven tracks long as well. So I've been listening to her a lot. Um, I listen to a lot of that kind of sound. Another great group to listen to who are very similar to that is a French production uh, trio, I believe, called Jazz Liberators. Um, on their albums, they've um, they featured uh, some members of the Far Side, um, people like that. So it's, it's that kind of um, it's that kind of vibe. Um, and interestingly, as well, I think when I when Pusha T's Daytona came out, and it's it's only seven tracks long. I believe seven tracks is the minimum amount you have to have on an album for it to be considered for the Grammy Awards. Oh, okay. 
Um, I believe it's got to be seven individual uh, pieces of, of, of work to constitute an album to be uh, to be nominated for it. So uh, there you go. Interesting. Sounds like something I would want to check out. Martin, what, we, what, what would you like us to listen to? Uh, well, I don't know if you, I'm not going to recommend it. So actually, it's just something I was listening to for no particular reason. But I was thinking about the album a lot. It's called Gentlemen by the Afghan Wigs. Afghan Wigs are a kind of alternative rock Americana band. Um, very influential. Um, they had a they had a massive kind of Motown soul influence to them. Um, songs mostly about relationships and heartbreak. So obviously, this is kind of my world. <laughs> and uh, but what's interesting about it is you get when when you, you've got songs about relationships and love. They're either love songs. Oh, I love you. You know, we're in love. Everything's great. Or they're heartbreak songs. I've lost you. I'm going to kill myself. Whatever. Right. This is it's why different. you don't write lyrics, man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is a bit different. And like, I, I won't talk about the music because the music is what it is. It's great indie rock. It's beautiful, alternative, excellent musicians. But it, what I'll talk about is the characters that the singer Greg Dooley he builds in his lyrics. And it's about usually a man. Imagine him. You're in a Midwest bar, right, in some Midwest town, and there's a truck stop there, and there's, like, you know, just deadbeats and all that stuff. And you're in a bar, and, you know, fights are going on, and you're sat at the bar with a whiskey. I'm picturing Twin Peaks here, Martin. I'm picturing Twin Peaks. Yeah, kind of like, yeah, there's one-eyed jacks, that kind of thing, right? (laughs) And there's a blues band playing, right? And you're sat there at the bar with a whiskey, and you've just lost the love of your life because you shagged a stripper and you're really feeling caught up about it and you can't help doing it because you're just a fucking mess of a man. That's basically <laughs> what the lyrics are. And they're great because they're just, it, it's a different take on ending a relationship. It's more about sort of the whole taking ownership about a man who realises he's got problems, you know, who realises he probably shouldn't be hitting the bottle, shouldn't be going out all the time, you know. Maybe even was probably partly biographical in that he's in a touring band, you know. He's out playing shows every night, likes to drink back in the day. You know, they were rock and roll animals back in the day, that band. And, um, you know, they probably did a lot of stuff. But it's just a, a beautifully made album. The lyrics are poetically gorgeous. I'm so jealous of the lyrics. Um, you know, it's, they're just great. And they just deal with, like, the human condition and what it feels like to be just a man who's a shit person to be in a relationship with. So there you go. If you ever feel like that, whack it on. I quite enjoyed it, actually. Um, it, it's it's funny because it's just... There's no reason why I got this, but I was when I was listening to that album today, it reminds me so much of Hope of the States. Hope <laughs> of the States. I think musically there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, yeah but there shouldn't be. No. <laughs> but you've got a band from Sussex and a band from where? Maybe, I don't know where that Afghan wigs are from even. That's yeah. all they're a Washington band, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's, but I was, I was really surprised. Uh, uh, how much yeah. uh, how much it reminded me of Hope of the States. Interesting fact about Hope of the States. I had a best mate once, used to lend me guitars all the time, um, and he was a guitar tech for Hope of the States. And once I played a gig, took me around to Hope of the States rehearsal studio, choose any equipment you want to do your gig with. <laughs> so I used Hope of the States gear. They were with a great band. They were yeah. a great band. They are a good band. Them. Although they're not around anymore. One of the guys committed suicide. Yeah, Jimmy Lawrence. They released another album after he died. 
Um, so they carried on for That's a little really bit. That's really sad. I met yeah. them, and, that, and you know, I lived lived near the same town they lived in. I used to see them about quite a lot, and they seemed they were nice lads. Yeah, great music, and um, the violinist's gone on to have a great career as a um, as a producer. Cool, produced some great records. Good. I thought a lot about what album I was going to choose, and. Figuring that we're in the middle of a pandemic, it made the most sense to pick something quite long because um, we've got time now, you know, and uh, I'm a big fan of the, old, the whole double album. Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, Infinite Sadness is a cracking album. But the album I went... The Times, 1987, best double album. Oh, no. The Fragile Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> we're not having this right now. That's coming later. I decided to pick an album called Animal Choir by a band called Her Name Is Calla. Um, I saw them play at a festival in 2016 and really enjoyed and then sort of slept on them and then rediscovered this album uh, after it came out and discovered that the band had announced they were splitting up before they released it. Um, and it's just a beautiful album. It blends, it, it's post-rock, is the genre but they blend a lot of other things in there's some electronic moments there's some uh there's some folk elements in there there's some heavy bits like the opening track is called the swan and it sounds like swans which i the band which i, I find quite interesting uh, the singer's voice is lovely the lyrics are they're pretty melancholy but i think it's it's sort of what i needed at the moment um yeah the two tracks towards the end of the album there's a track called robert and gerda and a track called uh, bloodline and those two tracks are just stunning there the lyrics are quite to me they seem like they're about the end of his band um but they relate quite they relate to, to everyday life as well the musicianship's incredible it's 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 just an album that i recommend everyone sit down and have a listen through because it's definitely an experience <laughs> I can vouch for that. It is, uh, it's definitely an experience. Uh, you correctly identified that I wouldn't like the first track. Uh, <laughs> but then from then on, it does get it does get very interesting very quickly. The Dead Rift, the second track, is a good track. And the one I like the most on the album that I listened to, I didn't listen to the whole thing because it is quite a long album, but uh, there's a track on it called A Modern Vesper, which yeah. is just a left-field uh, kind of electronica track out of nowhere, which was really surprising. Yeah. That was a great, great, great yeah. listen. I like that. That track's really interesting because it's a reworking of, I think it's their second single from about 12 years ago, and they oh, reworked okay. it. And it's, it's really good. The Dead Rift is the lead single off the album, and the Dead Rift yeah. is quite interesting. It, it, when I said to you the other day, it sounds like what would happen if um, Godspeed Your Black Emperor fronted by Turin Brakes covered Fleetwood Mac. And I think that's. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I I, I described it as that. And Turin uh, breaks, man. That's obscure. They, Turin what, breaks are not obscure. No, no. They, they are, <laughs> compared to all the other nineties acoustic bands, they're the only decent one, I think. Yeah, the Turin breaks were amazing. They're I awesome. saw them play uh, two years ago at the Hub in Plymouth, and they were amazing. They're, they've still got it. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 a great album, and yeah, get yourself in a dark room, headphones loud, and just listen through it. That's yeah. what I did, and it is. I can, yeah, I can attest to that. It is a good, good album. Yeah, you won't hear anything else like it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, you will. Tearing breaks crossed with Fleetwood Mac crossed with whatever the other. God speed you like Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, what have you been uh, listening to? What would you like uh, our listeners to uh, to join in with? 
So the album that I've chosen is Roxy Music, Roxy Music, the first album. The classic. Um, I chose it because it kind of ties in with the year that I've chosen uh, in the fact that it's uh, kind of a starting point for a lot of genres and a kind of melting pot for a lot of genres. So um, the initial track, which is uh, on the album, is sort of teasing at, I don't know if there's anyone else catches this, but it's kind of it's every sort of three or four bars it has a unique riff or like a guitar riff. Mm. And to me it kind of sounds like it's got a, a Beatles riff in there, it's got a Stones riff in there, it's got yeah. a soul riff in there, and it's the track is entitled Renew, Remake. Remake remodel, I think. Remake yeah. remodel, correct. Yeah. And it's kind of like hinting to the whole album that this is going to be a new project, which is a melting pot for everything else that has come before. So they're going to try and remake and remodel everything that they've been influenced by. So mm. that might be Northern soul. That might be rock and roll. That might be Chuck Berry. That might be, you know, old blues, everything, everything's going to come into this album. Um, you could say it's a cacophony. Exactly. <laughs> I love the album. Um, we've had a little bit of discussion outside of this chat that there's other albums from Roxy Music people enjoy, which is great. But what I find is this, if there is something, is the fourth, uh, third, sorry, track on the album. And it's a real sort of meandering almost starts off country it's kind of got a slide guitar and the break is kind of prog rock and then breaks out the other side into sort of pop music so it's kind of three or four genres all at once that's my that's my favorite roxy music song i think that is a banger Mm. i really like lady tron lady tron's great Mm -hmm. did did um dave did you listen to the um the original um, LP that doesn't have Virginia Plain, or did you listen to the re-release that has Virginia Plain included? So I've got the original, which is inherited from my parents' record collection on yeah. vinyl, because it doesn't um, have the single on it. It doesn't have Virginia no, Plain. Um, Virginia the version I listened to has that as track number four after, after if there is something, um, and yeah, that that track is 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 phenomenal. I don't I don't know how the album would work without without that track as well because it's kind of a centerpiece of the album and if it's not there um I, it changes the listening experience i think i can think i can I, when you mentioned remake remodel i think the the first thing i i think of when i listen to that song is it sounds like a proto virginia plane that's um, that's mixed yeah. with like, there's all those riffs on there aren't there from uh from from the uh, from day tripper um by the beatles um and you can kind of hear it's they're going to use the old and make something new and then they come out the other side with virginia plain um and yeah, i think it's very similar to what kind of style council did you know they they mm. know what they're going to be doing they're a progressive modern pop band but they're yeah. going to heavily take influence from the past and credit that so Mm. Um, which I, I I think is great, and they're a band which I've listened to since I was seven or eight years old, mm. and I just think they're a great influence. Obviously, Brian Eno is in the original lineup here. If you've got the double fold LP, 
his cardigan of leopard print plus blonde mullet is just fucking incredible anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think I need to go through that phase, if you, I think. If you, if you see how he's dressed in the album sleeve for their second album, For Your Pleasure, that takes yeah. him to an even even further level. <laughs> Some yeah. of their top top of the pops performances are amongst the, the best ever top of the pops performances. They they were just like they they were just a mishmash of of glam rock with new romanticism and just mm-hmm. hippie stuff. It was just mm-hmm. very sort of old and it, it worked. It's, they're a very strange mm-hmm. band, but they're a very good mm-hmm. band. A quote anyone from else anyone else <laughs> think that um his vocal style was probably a big influence on David Byrne? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I can hear. Yeah, that. I think he probably took influence from uh, Roy Orbison. He's a very yeah. high vibrato singer. But yeah. yeah, my a quote a quote from my mum: Brian Ferry is the best singer who can't sing that's ever existed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you haven't mentioned Two HB, and um, so my experience of, of Roxy music. So my mum had for your pleasure on vinyl when I was growing up and that was the album that got me into it. Um, and then when I was at university, uh, flaming lips made a late night tales record, which is where mm-hmm. bands make a compilation of the stuff that inspired them. And that's got two at two HB by Roxy music on it, um, off their first album. And that, that track is, is my favorite on that. It's, album. it's a good, it's a good, that was, a, uh, that was a single, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. was yeah, and it's it's a great track. Why has no um, one mentioned the album covers yet? <laughs> <laughs> but I was listening actually to another podcast recently, which is Adam Buxton, and he had Noel Rogers on, and he said when he was dating a woman in London, one of the gigs he went to go and see was Roxy Music, and he was completely blown away by the fact he'd never really seen kind of he'd seen parliament do their kind of space jazz crazy thing but they'd never really seen like high high fashion being put on stage and those guys turning up like absolutely dripping in designer gear and models on stage and everything and he was just completely blown away by that and then took that on to sheet I always find yeah. that, that Roxy music seemed like an odd fit for Brian Eno. It's like Bill Bailey being in Metallica or something like that. <laughs> it, it, it's just an odd. An, you do a well, if you if you if you listen to Brian Eno's first couple of solo albums, um, like Another Green World and Here Come the Warm Jets, if you listen to those after listening to the first two Roxy music albums, and you listen to what Roxy music did afterwards, I think you'll actually find it's what did Roxy music do without Brian. Eno rather than oh, absolutely. Brian Eno. So I think Brian Eno shapes the sound of Roxy yeah, music. Definitely. I, think, I just think I was talking more stylistically oh, in terms of yes, image. So. The music is definitely very much Eno and you can hear throughout what he did in the 70s with, with Bowie and then with Talking Heads, uh, that kind of sound, that odd that odd brooding kind of um, kind of synth sound uh, is there throughout all of his work. Um, so musically, yeah, he's definitely a right fit. I just think in terms of visuals, he, he it looks looks a bit jarring. That's an eclectic set of albums. It is. <laughs> Listen to them all in a row. Um, <laughs> in, no, in, in, no, no, listen to them all at the same time. I think, um, I think at the, at the, just very quickly as well, I think at the moment, like topically, um, I mean, obviously we've all named, named albums that we listen to, but I think topically at the moment, you know, if, if people are looking to tap into and kind of understand a little bit of what's happening in, in America, then, you know, go out and listen to some Public Enemy and some NWA and Outcast, A Tribe Called Quest, some bands like that that really have been sort of speaking about this kind of thing for for years and years. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's yeah. that, that, that's an important thing uh, to to kind of get behind at the moment in the times that we're in. So yeah, I, I definitely encourage people to do the same. Go out and listen to uh, not just not just the uh, hip hop stuff from that time, but um, earlier stuff from the likes of Sam Cooke and the the songs that really got the, the civil rights movement stirring in the sixties. I've been listening to a lot of Nina Simone uh, and a lot of uh, mm. Sam Cooke, especially a change is going to come. Oh, and Jill Scott Heron, the revolution will not be televised. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can get behind. Did uh, did anyone hear that story? Apparently, these the anonymous hackers got uh, played "fuck the police" by NWA over the police radio system. <laughs> I hope that's true. There's videos of it. It's true. It happened. We 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 would love to hear more 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 things like that in the news. I think at the moment we need to learn to fight the power. Yeah, boy! <laughs> obviously, obviously, we are not inciting violence in any way. I just feel it's important to clarify. Maybe yeah. just slight microcosms of viol- uh, violence within your own room, on your yeah. own. Maybe uh, if you're slightly angry at one of the records that we've uh, coated down, uh, then maybe just throw something across the room. Batter a side of toast with intent. Yeah. Knock a remote control <laughs> off your table. Let's not go too far, Martin. Right, guys, that's been fun. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the inaugural Cacophony Sessions podcast. If you like what you hear, stay tuned because we plan to do a lot more. Let us know what you'd like to hear. You can find me on Twitter at Golden E Pump, and we'll see if we can wring out our conversational cloths together in a future episode. Wow, that sounds sexy. It's a crazy, crazy world out there, kids. Uh, so until next time. Get out of my Bye. house. Yeah, take care, guys. Bye. Now let it die. Be safe. Stay funky.